All right, welcome to another episode of Finishing Touch. My name is Tyler Wilson. Uh, the sole host here today, our dependable co-host, uh, David Zyduck, is out for the week. Uh, but worry not, we have a, a, a fun and, and lively guest here. Uh, one of the, I would say, the hottest writers of NBA Twitter to come uh, for this upcoming season here. It's been awesome having quite a few different uh, hit pieces here. The obituary on James Wiseman is one of my favorites, and uh, none other than Charlie Cummings on the other line. Charlie, how you doing today? I'm good. How can I not be juiced up after that intro, man? Uh, it, it although, has been fantastic. The run has been great to watch. I, I, I'm watching it like pride and envy. It's 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 wonderful, dude. That's great. Killing well, it. Hey, man. you know we're we're all we're all swishers together. So. <laughs> You fix Clay Thompson's jump shot. What is next? Who knows? Find out today. It's going to be great stuff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you haven't read any of Charlie's stuff, really, really been awesome this year covering the Warriors. We're going to talk some of the young guys today, uh, specifically the ones that are playing with the team uh, this year, mostly. Uh, we'll hit on some of the the others at the end, but I want to kind of dig into how the core group of uh, Jordan Poole, Moses Moody, and Jonathan Kaminga fit together currently, what they look like in the future, like kind of like how this is going to work. It's really interesting. Uh, I am really intrigued by the team, so uh, looking forward to diving in. Uh, but we will start off with our question of the podcast. As an NBA slash NBA draft slash NBA uh, writer, that's too many slashes there, may cut that in post. <laughs> Who knows what happens? Uh, what would you say – is the easiest skill to develop and hardest skill to develop once you are in the NBA. Yeah, this was tough. Uh, believe it or not, I think I spent at least half my prep for this just thinking <laughs> about this question because I'm like, it, it, damn, you've got so many good answers, but I don't want to like repeat on any of them. Um, but I, I kind of went like more micro with it. Like to me, you know, the easiest thing to develop and – I think the problem with so many skills is when you look at, you know, like I thought Nima's answer was great of saying handle was really tough to develop, but there needs to be some sort of baseline there. You know, like you're not just going to teach like Isaiah Stewart into like, you know, crossovers, like running pick and roll, like that stuff doesn't yeah. really happen. So I tried to think like, what is like the most simple thing? And I think the easiest one to get is defensive hand positioning. Uh, that's a thing I really see across the league all the time that drives me crazy. Like, guys closing out without their hands up. Um, if you have a cutter that goes to the inside, like use your inside hand to shield his catch radius and just try to like get a deflection that you can't even see. Um, especially guys when are working on the post and perimeter, it's been awesome to see Andrew Wiggins. Like he's incredible at keeping his inside arm right on the player. He switches as soon as they're making different moves. He's always got his hand up to contest, but he's never chopping down with it. And then when I go around and I'm watching other teams, I'm like, man, no one's doing these, these things. And they're so simple. So to me, I think that's like one of the easiest things to develop is just get active, stay active, keep your hands in the right place, switch them all the time and uh, don't, don't get too crazy with it. Speaking the truth of every youth basketball coach that's ever existed, dude, keep your hands up, move your arms. I mean, it's true. It, you see, 
it, it is crazy how often you see on an NBA court people with their hands down and just like getting like having shots like over their head and immediately in front of their face and their hands are like all the way at their ankles. There's no way they're gonna be able to pull their hands up to actually contest something. And uh, yeah, I, I love the like the 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 cornerback style defense of kind of like not even looking over your shoulder and just like sticking your arm up and watching their eye and just like hoping that, that you get the ball. And I think that's more effective than people uh, people think. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that is a great answer. What is uh, what do you think is the least effective then, or the, the least easy to develop skill? I think it it sort of is you know it sort of is a broader concept, but I think nailing down good help defense is really one of the toughest things to develop in guys. You know, it depends on the schemes and shifting responsibilities you have, but so often I see like teams designing their sets around running through multiple options, just waiting for a breakdown because they know some boy, somebody's going to break down in rotation. And we've seen that like this league, I think has a huge problem with overhelping. And I get to watch uh, Anthony Lamb, unfortunately, who is one of the worst overhelpers I've ever seen. Like he's just constantly flying around, like trying to make doubles that aren't there. He's, you know, like tagging super hard on guys who are like, not even getting any leverage on a drive, you know, like if someone, if someone is driving to the paint and they're not getting anywhere, you don't need to come help on them. They're taken care of. Like then you just opened up a corner shooter and they just got an easy shot out of something unproductive. Um, But I think at the same time, it's very difficult because with the degree, the ball was flying around now, it's so hard to like stay within yourself. You know, like when I watch, old 70s and 80s games and like all of these actions are so slow and drawn out it's like no wonder it was easy to be like oh well you know i've maybe got this shooter over here but he's only you know 15 feet away from the basket so i can get back to him and i got to keep an eye on this like pick and roll in front of me but i only have like two or three decisions to make now you got to make so many decisions it's just a small period of time so i think that's one thing we've really see become become very difficult you know there are easy things you can do to clean it up but it is getting harder and harder to be a good help defender in the league yeah, that is a that's a terrible point for my keldon johnson a, a agenda but uh, <laughs> one i think is unfortunately correct uh it, it's not something that gets that gets better incredibly easily and i think that uh I, t- to keep the football references going because for some reason football is on my mind even though i uh, <laughs> have not watched hardly any this year thankfully uh What's the way to be? When I it is it's, it's been great. I mean, as a Broncos fan, I'm trying not to say like really offensive things about Russell Wilson right now. Like we share the same last name. I feel a kinship, you know. But you know it, that's tough. It's really ugly. But um, I think about it I, in watching Kelvin tape over the summer. Was it he felt very much like a one read quarterback playing defense of like once he had to make one decision or one cut, it was like okay, well I can I can move this way. I can see this action happening. But the second he had to make a second decision or make a second rotation off that first action, it was toast. It was over. He couldn't change directions and he couldn't actually make the decision to to like make a, a second aggressive action defensively or like a second movement. It was kind of like you have one you have one go and that's it. Like hopefully it's something happens. And uh, I think a lot of negative help defense players in the NBA come in that way. And that's something that is really difficult to get better at. And I don't even think you really get better at it. You just wind up in a scheme that like maximizes your tendencies in a way that, that helps. But that, that's like a level of processing that I don't know, like maybe if you just like played a, like a ton of like, like 2k simulations of these different defensive rotations, you get really good at it, but I don't know. That's not something that, 
I, I, I asked this on the last podcast. I can't think of anybody who has gone from being like a subpar or even like slightly below average help defender to being one that is like significantly above average. Like I don't, I can't think of anybody yeah. ever. You know, one guy just to uh, very smoothly segue into our Warriors talk. Uh, Here we go. Jonathan Kaminga, when he started, he was sort of doing that Keldon type thing you described where he's like, I, you know, maybe I'm the low man on this possession. Like, I think that the pass is coming on the pick and roll here. Uh, he doesn't necessarily see this cutter besides him. So he's like, I'm going to just run in and sell out to try to like block the roll man. And if he manages to make a pocket pass behind me, then, you know, oh, well, he beat me. Um, yeah, it's over. <laughs> yeah, it's over. And, you know, if, if you're like, I know Keldon is a very good athlete, but Jonathan Kaminga is like a ridiculous sort of small space moving guy. So he, I think he sort of had the light turn on this year where he's like, I don't have to go all out. I can go 70, 80% of the way. I have the jump necessary to make that block if I need to, but I'm still hedging my bet against this cutter behind me because if he gets behind me, I can just turn around and, you know, get vertical, reject it. So I think that's sort of, that's sort of the development that you would like to see in a guy in like a very short amount of time where he's going from selling out to try to get the rejection to, if I play this a little more in the middle, I'm actually denying two options pretty effectively instead of just selling out to take away one. Yeah. I think that, having that athleticism and that vertical reach to help with being able to actually contest shots around the rim and that like, ability to get off the ground quickly makes a huge difference in terms of his health defense. I think Keldon's the biggest difference between Keldon and Jonathan Kaminga is Keldon was a, a solid top 10 recruit in his class. And Jonathan Kaminga was like the first recruit in his, like this number one ranked recruit in his class before he reclassified. So, I mean, like the, 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 the athleticism difference there is, is noted. And I think that seeing that improvement from Kaminga early in his career is enormous because it kind of like these first 18 months to two years in a career kind of in my eyes, at least set the trajectory of kind of like where you're going. And obviously there's things that happen on the, the tail ends of outcomes, but if you really want to achieve one of those like 95th percentile outcomes of, of a player, like you need to see like market improvements early on, especially in areas mm -hmm. that are going to be like high leverage, like it would be in health defense for Jonathan Kaminga. Like, is that something that you see is becoming like something that is like reliably a positive or something that you, at least isn't going to hurt you within the scheme of like the Warriors defense. And like, if it is going to be positive, what does that look like? Is he like a, like a, this help side rim protector that's incredible? Is he somebody that is able to like, you know, dig on drives? Like what, how does it look? Yeah. I think, you know, primarily for him, the defense is on ball, especially against stronger wings. Uh, there was a game I want to say about a week ago where they matched up against the Mavericks and Luca as he does beat the hell out of every Warriors perimeter defender, Andrew Wiggins included, you know, um, but he couldn't get the same leverage with Kaminga. Like he tried taking him off the dribble and he would get denied. He tried putting him in the post. Kaminga wouldn't give any ground and would still contest his shots. Like he's just everywhere because he's got this crazy athleticism package, but he's moving his feet really well. And he's unbelievably strong. Like just to see that back to back mm -hmm. where you know, Andrew Wiggins is a very strong guy and he was getting bumped off the block by Luca. Clay Thompson, very strong guy. Luca would just walk him into the paint and to see Kuminga like legitimately hold him up and give maybe like a half step on a low post possession and force him into a fadeaway. You're like, 
okay, like that, you know, there aren't many like times where you get to very clearly delineate who is the strongest guy here, but to see two like former all defensive caliber guys, one current and Andrew Wiggins um, getting, you know, walked around by Luca and then to see Jonathan Kaminga completely stonewall him in the post. That is, that is something notable. Um, So I think the Warriors are sort of relying on that on ball defense being sort of his primary value because they're always going to be scoring wings, especially late in the playoffs. And you need someone who can effectively deny those options. But as far as his help defense, I think he's made a lot of strides. Like I think you, like you said, he could be the weak side rim protector. Sometimes he's got a lot of athleticism. He's really good at navigating around the paint, which is what I see. Like uh, his rookie season, you know, you'd have some times where he'd, he'd try to like jump over for a layup or try to like contest a layup and realize, Oh, I'm directly under the rim. Like if I jump, I'm just going to, you know, slam my head against the backboard. You don't really see those sort of positioning errors anymore. And, you know, as far as being like kind of that dig guy, I think he has a way to go in terms of like being able to get his arms in there without fouling and like positioning Mm -hmm. himself well, because so much of what I appreciate about, you know, watching Andre Iguodala is um, he's always known for his strips, like, on the ball. He just is crazy at doing that. But he always goes, like, in a downwards motion or in an upwards motion because he's very close to the ball. And, like, when you're not that close and you're just trying to reach out and slap, even if you get it out, like, it just looks so much like a foul that it's going to get called. So I think that's sort of the progression for Kaminga is can he – work enough on his positioning off the ball to put himself in chances to succeed because he has all the tools to succeed in really every off ball help scenario. Like he's got the wingspan to intercept in the passing lanes. He can obviously protect the rim. He can come in and like provide really good doubles and then recover out to the perimeter. So I think he's sort of in the, you know, not breaking what you're doing territory right now and trending towards like a genuine positive for this team. Yeah, I, I really love what I've seen out of Jonathan Kaminga's defense this year. And I think the the point that you just made about Andre Guadalla's ability to get steals on ball or it, it just in any situation where it was more of a like a smaller, less pronounced movement, like either downward or upward to kind of like attract less attention from the rest, I think is a really interesting one. And, like, and from a draft eval perspective, you always hear about two-hand digs. Like, oh, he goes for two-hand digs. Like, he he wants the ball on in-help defense, and he's going to go and just, like, rip it out of your hands. Like, you heard that with Tari a lot last year. And, like, I do think, like, more often, not more often than not, but, like, there is a, a fine line between, like, oh, that is a cool two-hand dig. And, like, dude, you look like you're going into, like, trying to, like, whack his head off. Like, it, mm-hmm. of course they're going to call a foul because, like, your arms are flailing like crazy. So I think that's a really interesting point, and I really like that one. Um but I think that his his growth there is probably going to be where they at least lean on him most heavily coming on is being able to guard Luca in any kind of one-on-one setting is borderline impossible. And he really mm-hmm. is maybe the strongest player in the NBA. And with the ball in his hands, I don't think there's anybody stronger in the league than Luca in terms of, I mean, obviously Giannis exists and sometimes that's hard to remember. Um, but like just the yeah. way he bumps people off his spots and, the way he just gets where he wants to be every single offensive possession is incredible. And to see somebody like even make him like move like a half step less is awesome and super cool. And I think that's like the kind of the delineating factor of like a really great defender. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, the Twitter going to Twitter thing. Like, you know, I tried to post, I tried like posting all these defensive possessions and 
I made very clear that Luca beat up every warrior not named Jonathan Kaminga, but I'm like, he beats everyone up. So if someone can actually stop him, then that's definitely worth noting. And naturally, you get a bunch of Mavericks fans being like, oh, well, he dropped 40 and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't get, I don't think you get what I'm saying. I'm saying that he is so good offensively that anyone who can affect him in any sort of way is notable. Like, that is the standard right there. If you can knock a guy who's at the top of his game a little bit off his game, then that's translatable. Even if it's just this one game that we're seeing, we're like, oh, he has that potential to. Yeah really affect one of the best scores that we've seen in a long, long time. Yeah, because in a playoff setting, the difference between, what, 31 points and 26 points is, like, that's a, that's a game. That's a series. Mm-hmm. That's like that's a moment. Like, you don't Especially have to shut somebody down. the Mavericks that needs every single Luka point to win on any given night. Exactly. And, and when you're guarding any of these superstars, no one's going to give you, like, the LeBron in 2011 finals moment. It's like, oh, he just can't make a shot. Like, they're locking down the best player in the world. Like, that's never going to happen in a playoff series because that's just not how elite NBA players operate. That's not how teams operate. It's just, I mean, to have a pronounced impact, even if it's just, like, um, four possessions of a game is enormous with these kind of guys because they just get whatever they want all the time. And um, to see that from Kaminga is really cool. And oh man, I, I I feel afraid of even saying this, but like what made Kawhi such an incredible defender was the fact that he had the foot speed to hang with smaller defenders, but he was so freaking strong. There's nobody on the planet that could move him. And while Kaminga does not have the kind of hands that Kawhi had and doesn't have the kind of mm-hmm. instincts he had, it, 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 he's not the kind of ball hawk that Kawhi was because Kawhi would just look at you and be like, give me. And he would just yeah. take the ball. And... <laughs> And obviously coming is not that, but he does have that combination of like, he's really quick on his feet and he is just so freaking strong and no one can move him. I think that is incredibly valuable to build around with the team and, and not to expect him to be like a 20 point per game scorer, but somebody that could be yeah. like incredibly impactful in a playoff setting. I think Kawhi before his injuries was probably the standard of like, you will not find a combination of foot speed and strength this high in one player, like with both categories being that mm-hmm. insanely high. And Kuminga is probably like a top I mean, we have a lot of unbelievable athletes in the league today, but he's probably a top five or ten combination of those two things right now. And yeah, I think he's the closest to Kawhi in that respect of this coming into the league. Although Pat Pat Williams and stuff, I don't think that's really comparable at all. I think Jonathan Kuminga is the only comparable athlete to Kawhi that we've seen in the last like ten years. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things, too, where, you know, we'll talk about some other guys who have, like, more athletic limitations. But <laughs> when you when you have a player of this caliber and it's, like, his limitations are self-imposed. Like, they're, in, they're development limitations. They're skill limitations that he can work on. They're not athletic because you can teach a guy so many things. You can even teach a guy to, you know, sort of – mask their athletic deficiencies but when you have none that gives you a very strong basis to build up from where it's like i'm literally capable of everything so let's just figure out what i can do and how quickly i can do it yeah that sounds like some pretty good clay to start building with i I like that i can do anything (laughs) what do you what would you like for me to try um uh i think so I didn't expect to spend like almost 20 minutes talking about Jonathan Kaminga's uh, defensive upside and role, but dude, he's awesome. He's really cool. I'm excited. Um, the fact that he's 
been good because he does seem like in his persona pre-draft and all like the intel on him was that he's like an incredibly hardworking guy that's very straightforward and just like wants to be better and learn and it has been cool to see him improve especially on the defensive end offensively um bit of a mixed bag how do you feel like his progression has been through his first or whatever year and a half in the nba and where do you see like maybe not like an idealized but like a a generally realistic positive outcome for his offensive game like his role yeah, in terms of a player comparison, I don't really have anyone in mind there. I think maybe, maybe you know, an Aaron Gordon-type outcome is reasonable in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to set expectations where he's not your first scorer, he's ideally not your second scorer, but if he's your third guy and, you know, the shot is falling on a given night, then you really have something there. Um, I think... I think the development has, for me, has always been what surprises me so much about him because when he got onto the team, he had very little to offer offensively. Like the athleticism could get him going on defense, and he would he would cut really well. You know, he's an explosive putback guy, but he couldn't catch the ball like all of his rookie year. It was a major struggle, and he's really flipped that on his head. Uh, like, you know, almost a year removed from that. So, you know, to go from a guy who, like, is dribbling the ball off his knee on every drive and failing to catch wobs or, like, bounce passes on cuts to someone who can actually take guys off the dribble, like, make kickouts or just get to the rim against a mismatch. Um, Even, you know, like, spamming cuts like the Warriors do so often. If you're catching those, you know, eight or nine out of 10 times, that's a huge improvement on five out of 10. And I don't think, I don't think he quite has like the offensive upside that we sort of saw in the G league where it's like, Oh man, like when he's just out and running and, you know, trying to make plays with the ball, like he can do a lot of really interesting things. And I think part of that is kind of the warrior system. You know, they're not reliant on him to be that sort of primary scoring threat. So they're like, you're going to cut off the ball. You're going to crash the glass pretty hard offensively. When you get mismatches, you should absolutely take them to the rim because you are capable of that. You have a good finishing package. Um, he's probably – he's a little too happy to go into, like, those, you know, jump stop and then just, like, try to fake, spin, like, up fake mm-hmm. a guy, and they're just like, dude, I've got you. Like, <laughs> it's over. Like, you know, pass out. And he's just like, no, I got this, and then gets pinned on the backboard. But – you know, for me, it's it's just about seeing where he is now versus where he was a year ago, and that is a very stark difference. Like, he went from a complete offensive, like, what are you going to give me tonight, to a rather consistent glass crasher, cutter, um, semi-ball handler when the opportunity presents itself. Uh, I'm still – I'm not bullish on the jump shot, but I'm also not sold of it mattering that much. You know, if he – becomes a low to mid thirties guy. Great. And if he doesn't, he still just has blinding athleticism in a team that's more than capable of making up for shooting deficits. So that's, that's sort of where I'm at with him is he's like trending towards the offensive positive category, but you know, he might not be this sort of ball dominant 20 point per game wing that we saw the glimpses of uh, with the G league. No, absolutely. And I think, in my personal opinion, that outcome is a little bit less fun. Because I think that the, the exciting stuff that Jonathan Kaminga does is 
on the defensive end and within space and off ball offensively. And like, yeah, you could put him into a role where he's going to score 20 a night and you're probably going to be disappointed in the efficiency numbers and his ability to like command that kind of a role on an offense. And I, and what's weird with Kaminga is that like he has the makings of a game. Like you, you watch him shoot a fadeaway, you watch him shoot a turnaround jumper or a pull up in the mid range or whatever. Like, yeah, it looks relatively good. It doesn't look like it's a disaster. It's not like you're like, Oh, like it's just broken. He's not going to make it. But I've never been so confident that someone's going to miss shots. And when Jonathan Kamingo to pull up in the mid range in, in the G league, mm-hmm. like the second half of that year, it was just brutal. And I, like, I don't think he has particularly great touch. And I do think that, within like the development of shooting, everyone comes on the pod and says that shooting is the easiest thing to develop because it's the thing that everyone develops most frequently because it just takes repetition and like muscle memory in terms of like, all right, I can catch here. I can, like, these spots on the court, I know I'm confident in taking jumpers from. And uh, there's no reason he can't get to that. And if you're there, then like, if you, if you have to close out on any kind of like level to Jonathan Kaminga on like even just a regular spot up where he's just been standing there for 12, 12 seconds of a possession waiting for the ball. Like if you have to close out on that, like you might be toast. And that's yeah. like, that's cool. And I think that's really awesome. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's been cool to watch him play in Golden State. And it was exciting to see them draft him knowing that there was a greater plan and the fact that he's been able to fit into a more like movement and flowy kind of style of offense and, and defense. That's a little bit more like, like synced, <laughs> I guess in a lot of other places would be, um, has been cool. Cause that was like probably my biggest concern coming in was like, how is he going to be able to operate within a scheme? And it's not like golden States is particularly easy to pick up for someone that isn't like a high touch feel kind of player. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, the force closeout points too, because I think, I think it can be sort of an underrated term. You know, like I see people use it with, you know, like the, the Scotty Barneses of the world. I love Scotty as much as anyone. But when people say like, oh, you know, he needs to be like the the closeout forcer. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's great. But, you know, he has so much other utility besides that. Um, mm-hmm. He's an incredible post player. Like, obviously, it's very good for him to be getting like downhill possessions where he can make reads. But... I think it's even more critical for a guy like Kaminga because it's like you aren't really a ball handler. You aren't really the guy we can put in the post and run plays through. Like you have to be you – know, you're often going to be doing your damage against a rotating defense. So can you keep the ball rolling there and, you know, even force like a soft closeout? Like even – like when he's spaced out in the corner, you know, are guys just kind of like running to the low block and being like, you know, go ahead, shoot it. I'm just going to stand here and stonewall your drive. Or are they taking a couple steps further because they're genuinely thinking about the shot? And then he's able to just ridiculously blow by people when he has that kind of advantage. Um, He can score against guys who are already positioned waiting for the drive. So if they're starting to sort of hedge against the shot and he's being able to get into those drives more often, then it'll all really start to fall into place. Yeah, I think that the level is like the defense just can't step into cement as soon as like you catch the ball on the perimeter. Like as soon mm-hmm. as that defender turns around from help to turn to see you have the ball, he has to take a couple steps to you. He doesn't have to like hard close out into the point where you're just going to beat him. And he even doesn't have to do it like drastically, just enough to where he can get a step and have a couple of paints in the lane, bump him and bring help in from the corner, bring help in from somewhere else and be able to make it a, like a, straightforward decision or get to the rim and like that is 
a hyper simplified role of like what he can do. But like, I think that's kind of how you have to use him offensively, but it can be particularly effective. And like, I don't know, his role type is the most interesting to me in the league of just to like, you can defend the best players in the NBA and how do we make you survive on offense? And like, can we make you like particularly effective on offense? And uh, I think Golden State's there. If he doesn't shoot, I think he's just a small ball five and that kind of uh, dampens some of the excitement about it. Um, Cause there's like what, five real shooting centers in the league that would be cool to play with him that make a difference. And like all of them are all pros. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. They're just not like feasible. You just, you're not going to acquire them. Like Nikola Jokic is not going to be a warrior, like a bummer, but he would be cool there. That'd be an awesome fit at next time. Even um, when people, even when people kick around, like, you know, like a miles Turner and I know he's, this is important. This is I know he's shooting. Position. I know he's shooting better from three this year than he has generally, but you know, if you're playing, if you're playing a Warriors lineup that has Steph Curry or Jordan Poole on the floor pretty much all of the time, and a Miles Turner three ends up being the outcome of the possession, that's a win for the defense. You know, like they're not, they're not too worried about that. He's usually like a dead on, like slightly below league average shooter. So if you're like, you know what, if the biggest guy on the floor is taking the shot, so we have an inherent rebounding advantage, and there's a solid two-thirds chance that it's not going in, we're fine with that. Um, I think I think part of you know what I've said about Kaminga is this is sort of the Warriors trying to like give him some short-term utility while also giving him things to build on. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little more, how that was like sort of the plan for James Wiseman and just did not go to plan, but um, I think they are sort of, you know, trying to play the middle a bit where they're like, look, we drafted you not only because we believe in your potential, but because we think you can do things for us right now. So let's see what you can do right now while also giving you a base to work off when your game is able to take off further, when we've sort of moved out of this core and you become, you know, one of the starters and the stars of this franchise, hopefully. Yeah, I think that is the effective way to develop prospects is to put them in roles that they can succeed in that are still beneficial to your team and allow them to gradually expand on those roles while still succeeding. You know, like mm-hmm. just don't throw them into the fire and have them suck for two years. Like that is like, not only is that just like a bummer to watch, but like it's, that's confidence crushing. That's like, that's tough to recover from. And some people don't. And like some people, it takes like three or four years. Like it took De'Aaron Fox, like quite a few years to like come back around and it came with the right center pairing. Like it's hard to turn around that kind of negativity. Not that like, obviously there's an importance of tanking, but um, I don't know. There's uh, the, how to develop players in on teams that are bad is so tough. And then being able to talk about it from a Warriors perspective, where it's like, you know, they're going to be playing competitive basketball and, you know, if they're doing things that are stupid, <laughs> they're doing things that are not beneficial to the team. Like it's just like, it's going to be cut to done. Like sit down is over. And yeah. It's going to stand out a lot more. Yeah, exactly. And like the margins for your success to like reap more on court time are just so small. And that is, I think inherently awesome for development. Um, Mm-hmm. I speaking on court time, somebody who needs more of it. Moses Moody is uh, some of the, the person I was actually most excited to talk about here because I don't really know what to do with his current state on the team and uh, where that is going forward. So where do you how do you see his growth so far and like how do you see him fitting in with this uh, group of young devs? Yeah, so in terms of in terms of right now, it's very funky like 
in fact, right now, as we're recording this, Warriors are winding down the fourth against the Jazz, and Moses Moody is closing the game because Andrew Wiggins and Steph Curry are both out of the lineup. Uh, so that's something. Like, it sort of kind of shows – I think it's, I think it's so, you know, people have made a lot out of Steve Kerr and, you know, if you, I know you've read my article, but if anyone hasn't check out like, uh, on Swish theory about why Moses Moody isn't getting playing time. Um, a lot was made out of the fouls and the turnovers and the turnovers were, you know, certainly a thing he contributed the fouls. I was a little more dubious of that. Like how much of these are actually really that bad. Um, but you know, people, people harped on Steve Kerr for, you know, sort of putting him in the doghouse. but if the guy's not performing, you're not just going to play him on pedigree. Like, that's not how this is going to work. Um, but at the same time you have to recognize like, oh, he's doing things well tonight. Let's give him these minutes, like screw whatever previous rotations I've decided to come up with. Like, uh, he, if he can play out there tonight and he's, in rhythm like let's go for it so the fact that he's can go from a guy who's like racking up dnps to closing a game shorthanded right now and actually playing pretty well is very interesting to me um yeah just speaking of jonathan kaminga just obliterated a jordan clarkson game tying jumper so (laughs) you know like you put faith in these guys and it'll pay off like it's just it's crazy to see that happen in real time and it's been it's been having a little more for Kaminga than Moody, which I think is unfortunate. But, you know, one of the things that I think all Warriors fans have noticed is how ready he is. Like, he's a guy who can be out of game action for a week and then come in and just, like, line up a 27-foot-three and nail it off the catch and look confident doing it. And you're just like, that's what's going to keep you around, man. Like, if you if you can sort of wade these waters right now where you're maybe the third or fourth wing on the team in terms of talent, and they just don't really have the room for you at the moment, like you, you have to be able to pick your spots. Um, I think defensively is where I'm a little more disappointed than, you know, sort of my expectations like pre-draft after the draft, you know, like he showed a lot of promising things. He's, he's a really, really good help defender for a guard, which I like to see, um, you know, the, the execution is sort of, it sort of varies, but when he really dials it up, like he's a great sink guy, he's a great filler. Um, I just think he's, he's pretty handsy when he's playing on the ball and, you know, for a guy with that good of footwork, you would want him to, you would want to see him, you know, let the feet do the talking, like, if I can just stay in front of you and keep my hands up, then I'm doing my job instead of trying to reach, trying to go in for deflections. Um, I think that sort of stuff gets him in trouble. So, you know, really for me, it's like, I know he can stay ready offensively. We sort of know what he is as an offensive player. Can you show that defensive consistency that'll get you on the floor? And once it gets you there, can you start to, you know, sort of formulate that offense all trickling down from the shot? Yeah, I think it is a it's a fine line to walk when trying to get young players minutes on teams that are trying to win games. And I think that from a Spurs perspective, we saw that with Lonnie Walker a couple of years ago in terms of trying to actually get on the court. And he had like 
Marco Bellinelli stunk when he was in San Antonio. Like he was not good, man. He was the, the worst offensive player in basketball for like two straight years. It was awful. And he played over Lonnie a lot. And he, the team played better with Marco Bellinelli on the floor. Like he just like he he at least knew where to be relatively defensively and at least didn't miss rotations in ways that like would harm the defense. At least he didn't foul. He wasn't aggressive to the point where he's like like drastically harming rotations besides just like getting cooked in space or like not moving but didn't do the things that like you know really would drive a coach nuts and like he figured out how to like stay on an nba court throughout his career and uh, i think that a lot of young players struggle with that and like walking that line between like okay this is too much now now we have to bench you or now we have to like, you know you get three straight dnps because i'm just like out on your defensive effort right now or whatever like that is that's tough. And like, at what point do you just kind of like have to be like, all right, we got to grand bear it and just hope it gets there. Cause we trust like the kid and we trust his defensive instincts. Cause I think that Moses Moody's always been a good defensive player. He's always been good. Mm-hmm. as like a, a positive defensive like draft prospect in high school and in college. And obviously his load in college was big off- offensively. And it was tough for him to provide the same kind of impact he would have wanted, but like in a tamp down role, you would think he would learn and figure it out. And so that has been kind of why, at least their approach to start the year was befuddling. And I'm glad that he's you know, closing the game tonight because he's good. And I think that he helps their their team in a tangible ways. Yeah, I mean, he's team high and plus minus tonight. I'm normally not a plus minus guy. but <laughs> Single guy game who, plus minus. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you know, when it fits my agenda, I'll use it, of course. Exactly. Um, it's, the, it's the ultimate stat to prove my – Yeah, my I, I can Jeremy ignore so it. Dominator. <laughs> Um, well, I think the thing too, that was really interesting is like, uh, when, when you see the sort of things that Steve Kerr pointed out, he's like, okay, you, we know you can force a closeout because teams already respect your shot. Even if it's not really going in, they know you're a good shooter. You've shown the ability to be able to drive baseline, like make reads sort of, you know, keep the offense flowing and not just, you know, sort of be like this binary decision maker like am I going to shoot it or am I going to go try to get a layup um the issue was that he would just try these like dump off passes without any sort of bounce pass or extra craft like trying to just squeeze it into a big in the dunker spot or to like a cutter coming off the wing and so many people would point out and they'd be like oh you know this is a pass that like Jordan Poole makes and screws up on and I'm like yeah well Jordan Poole gets to do that. Like, no disrespect to Moses Moody, but, like, Jordan Poole is here because of his offense. He's here because he can do special things that very few other players can do. He's unbelievably athletic, and he has just sort of a knack for, like, finding these windows for passing lanes. So, you know, I think the point that Steve Kerr's trying to make with that is, like, hey, Poole's here for his offense. We know what he is defensively. We want him to go out there and make mistakes. You, Moses Moody, are at best like tertiary playmaker when you're on the floor. So you don't get that same sort of, you know, leverage. It's just drive, kick, like make the sort of like academy brained reads that we normally knock on. But like that's that's what he needs to do is he just needs to sort of keep the offensive wheels greased. He doesn't need to be the play finisher or the play creator. He just needs to be that solid connecting guy. And I think... I think he's, you know, he's learned from that. Like he's making more kickout passes. Uh, he's driving with intent, not just driving to, you know, maybe try to make something happen. He's like actually making reads. So 
in the little glimpses we get to see from him, like there is some development where you see like, okay, he took this criticism from his coach. He's applying it on the floor. Like that's really all you want to see from a guy who's trying to find his role right now. No, absolutely. I think dovetailing that with pool is, is smart. Cause I think when you look at it and they, Oh, well they're, they're making some of the same mistakes like pass wise and like the little minor things here or there. Like, yeah, like Moses Moody is getting to that pass because he's attacking a closeout from an advantage that was created by Jordan Poole. <laughs> or he was yeah. like, and Jordan Poole was making that pass because he'd beat his man off the dribble and he's like, he's just shiftier and faster than you and he can get to the rim because he decided he wanted to get to the rim. Like that is just, there's a huge level of difference in terms of like their expected role and like their expected like potential output even. Like that even like the idealized version of Moses Moody is a dude who's like, you know, killing the open spaces on the court and like finding ways to get buckets in like gaps in a defense, not somebody who's creating like an enormous amount of offense that is, uh, I don't know, irreplaceable in, in that respect, the way that, like, Jordan Poole would. Like, that rim pressure is just incredible. Like, it, I'd love Yeah, Poole. it like, is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think when you – and it works on the flip side as well where Jordan Poole's off-ball defense, we'll talk more about that in a bit, but it's really bad. Like, it is as, as bad as it gets, honestly. Um, <laughs> But when he's making those mistakes, the Warriors know they're like, he, you know, he's trying to like, this is a weakness of his. He's trying to work through it. So when he makes those mistakes, it's more, I don't want to say forgivable, but it's more in line with what the Warriors expect. But when you see Moses making those mistakes, it's like, dude, this, we, we brought you here for this, you know, like we need you to be sort of this really responsible defender like you can't be the guy causing the breakdowns you know you need to be the guy cleaning up the breakdowns so you know that might not be fair to Moses but he doesn't have Jordan Poole's offensive talent so that is sort of where it lies at like you have to be playing within yourself you have to be playing as mistake free of a brand of basketball as possible and once you get to that point then maybe we can figure out more playing time from there um, so I think that's that's a, a very good point, and I guess like looking at it on like a macro level with Kaminga, we kind of talked about how offensively you envision him as somebody who's gonna you know cut, rebound, kind of a garbage man forward style offensive player that has you know some you know like I don't know what, I don't want to say like superstar flash, but there's a like latent like excitement of like that's this like undeniable athleticism and kind of like undeniability that is. Uh, at least intriguing in, in more than just your regular role player on offense that is, you know, going to cut and drive and make decisions. Like he's not K to Bates the app. Um, then versus Moses Moody is like, like defensively you envision like an off ball role, like guarding twos, chasing around screens, providing smart help, like making good decisions. And offensively it's going to be more of like a, a spacer and kind of this, uh, like uh what i'm thinking of. Like, a tertiary creator is probably the best way to do it like somebody who can attack a closeout and make a decision maybe run a pick and roll every once in a while but really you want him like spacing the floor like moving moving the offense like create like being a catalyst to good offense rather than being somebody who's creating it so then we get to jordan Poole, who his offensive role i guess is you know like what do you want like he's an incredible jump shooter off the dribble he's been he, his ability to get to the rim is just unbelievable he has moments of being a really exciting passer and he has moments of, you know, not passing at all. And so uh, I think his potential role, at least when looking at how 
it, it, we're kind of doing this in reverse order and the idea that Jordan Poole obviously is, he's already gotten paid. He's established on the team, but in terms of how Kaminga and Moody would be able, be able to play with Jordan Poole and how he kind of fits into the existing structure we've already built with Kaminga and Moody, like how does his game complement theirs and where do you think that there is like overlap that is going to affect that long-term? Yeah. And I think the frustration, a lot of the frustration has been, you know, when you see his defensive effort, like, I really don't have much more to say on the off-ball defense. The the guy's just a crazy drifter. Like, he gets lost. He loses cutters. Um, You don't – It's going to be, like, two minutes. Like, this isn't – like, the the defense for Jordan Poole conversation is not one that's very long. Yeah. And, you know, he has shown some things as a chaser where it's like, oh, like, you got over the top and blocked a big in the post. Like, you know, I'm I'm listening. Like, let's see a little more of that. But, um, you know, he's not – He's not there for the defense, um, but I think, you know, sort of where the frustration lies is we all sort of fall into this logic trap as a as a fan where you see a player on a linear trajectory and then they either, you know, plateau for a bit or maybe take a bit of a step back and we go, what the hell, this isn't the plan, like this isn't how this is supposed to go. And, you know, I don't know if that's all because we think it's like 2K ratings where you trade for a guy and he's a 75 and then he's just going to go up and up until he's an 87 and he had a really good player. Um, But he has taken legitimate steps back. And I think, you know, confidence plays a big role in that. I don't want to, you know, start speculating on whether or not getting punched in the face um, maybe playing (laughs) a role in that. But it's certainly it's certainly not nothing. I think, you know, when you see games like um, like early in the year, it was really just a struggle to uh, – it was really just a struggle to get consistent. Um, I think he sort of looked like he was going through the motions a lot. You know, he would be able to, like, get downhill, but he'd take, like, two dribbles and then kick and make a pass without consequence, or he would, you know – have good games of getting to the rim, but he wouldn't really be playmaking. Like, I think one game that stood out to me the most was uh, a game against the Pelicans where the Warriors rested a lot of their starters and Poole was the only offensive threat. You know, this is not a game that you're supposed to win, but if they're going to win, it was going to be because of Jordan Poole. And he got 26, if I remember correctly, that night, but he put on an insane display of only hunting his own shot. Like every possession he took was for himself. He made maybe one or two passes of consequence besides, you know, like a Jackie moon, my turn. Okay. Give it back on the perimeter. Like he was legitimately collapsing the rim all of the time, which was what we wanted to see. And then would just refuse to make passes or just take like early shot clock threes and, get blocked on a standstill by Herb Jones. And it's just like, dude, like you're showing us all of the things that we know you can do. And at the same time, making all of these decisions where you're just like, do you know what you can do? Because there's no reason for you to be taking these shots. There's no reason for you to just be hunting and hunting when you're collapsing the entire defense and you can kick out teammates, like especially in that sort of developmental context where it's like, you're not really going to win this game anyways. Like this is a good Pelicans team all the starters are rested. Like just, it doesn't matter that Jonathan Kaminga is the guy who's on the, 
who's like on the receiving end of this catch and shoot three like is that your best offense no but it's what you got tonight so make the reads because the coaching staff isn't looking at that and seeing oh well he made the kick to Kaminga so that's bad they're trying to translate it to oh well when he does this with the starting unit those kicks are going to Clay Thompson or those kicks are going to Draymond Green who's going to flow into a handoff for either Steph or Clay like that's what you want to see out of him so I think I think a lot of this frustration has just come from having seen it already and then having it like taken away from us. And we're like, whoa, like where'd this crazy confident guy that we saw in the playoffs go? Like where's the, the rim pressure, like the really deep shots, the, the celebration, like just sort of the exuberance there. So, um, you know, sort of circling back to the Kaminga point, it's kind of good where it's like, Hey, you don't really have athletic limitations. It's all, sort of mental at this point. And I don't want to diminish how difficult that must be to overcome, but it's much better than, eh, well, you know, you're, you're five foot 11 and you can't really like <laughs> guys off the dribble. So, you know, good luck figuring that one out. Like Jordan Poole can be an elite rim pressure threat, a great, if not elite shooter, just in terms of his package of like the variety of shots he can get off mm-hmm. the situations in which he can shoot. Um, so I think that that's sort of where the frustration lies is it's a different thing than, you know, a Moses Moody where you're like, Hey, you know, if you're just shooting catch and shoot threes 60% of the time and you hit like a high thirties percentage of them. Awesome. Like we have legitimately high expectations for pool and he's being paid for them. So I think that's sort of where all the pressure comes to a head right now. Yeah. I think he's, he's undeniably incredibly talented and somebody who is, very much worthy of being like a, like a number two option of an offense. Like he is, there's, there's not a whole lot of like weaknesses in terms of like what he's actually able to do, like from a skill perspective, like I, there's not really anything. I mean, it's, he's really good. And I think finding a consistent role, obviously with clay coming back that like changes his like outlook on the team and like, like how he's being used and like the lineups he's being used in. Obviously the team is a much less forgiving defensive structure than it was last year. Um, I think that they, there's been market changes to the supporting cast around them. And that probably has played a solid role. And, you know, like he, when you don't get to play all your minutes next to Andrew Wiggins, who's like an awesome, just like, I, I feel like every lineup that has Andrew Wiggins is just a good lineup. Like I just, I totally every buy time. it. He's yeah. an incredibly, I just, I cannot tell you how shocked I am to hear that. I remember just being in college, like sitting in my car, listening to podcasts, talking about Andrew Wiggins. He's been like, this is not like this guy's is, is toast. Like it's over. Like it's never going to happen. Like it's another number one bust. It's just not, not going to work out. And the fact this is what it's become is so freaking cool. And it's, I don't know, he's, he's really good, but uh short Andrew Wiggins aside, that's my guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and I just think that, his role and his outlook on the team has changed drastically. And obviously his relationships within the team itself have changed drastically over the last you know, nine months. And that's going to take time to figure out. And you know, maybe that doesn't happen in golden state, but he's still going to be a highly valued asset around the league. Cause he's shown what he can do when put into the proper circumstance and like teams aren't stupid. They don't look at this and think, Oh, well like, he was incredible in the playoffs last year on the title winning golden state warriors like and he's not that good like it's this is obviously no like that's an incredibly high leverage situation that you know most people don't really thrive in and the people that do don't just go away and are bad forever like there's obviously a reason behind it and um 
there's been some progress, right? Like there's been reasons for hope and like sign on the horizon that like things are coming along. Um, yeah. Like even, you know, I'm not going to pretend like this jazz backcourt is anything defensively of note, <laughs> but 36 points, eight assists tonight. He got to the line 13 times. Like that's the sort of positive development that you want to see. And he's having games where he doesn't, just have a certain goal in mind you know he's not like oh i'm gonna make a ton of plays tonight uh or i'm gonna take a ton of shots and he's having nights where the shot isn't falling and he's like you know what it's not my night like i'm just going to collapse the rim and get others involved and keep the offense going that way so i think you've definitely seen like positive changes over the last few weeks and that's something that i really expect him to sort of hone in on and hopefully you know make this early part of the season, the thing at the past. Yeah, man, uh, Steph and, and Clay and the Golden State team, they are like, they are the healers, man. Like they're just going to figure it out. They're just like they, the entire energy of the place. The reason that they were incredible the way they were is because of the chemistry within the team and just like the energy they played with and the energy that they had for the sport and for each other. And that was incredible to watch. And I hated it as a Spurs fan. And like, you know, Steph fixes all, right? You know, like eventually you just give it enough time and it's going to heal. Like, it'll be okay. So I think that uh, Poole is really exciting. And I think that his fit with, I guess, more so the, the Kuminga and Moody's fit next to him is, is really interesting because particularly offensively, I think that they fit together really well. And they, they, the Poole really maximizes the other two in a way that is solid when he's looking to involve other people on, on the court. Obviously playing next to like, a legitimate point guard is an important point there. Um, how do you envision like the, the team's view of the three of them long-term? Like, do, do, do you envision the three of them starting together one day? And that's like your two through four. And that's like the, the future of where it's going. Cause I mean, Wiggins, who knows, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. He's got a huge deal. Like it's not unheard of to think that Andrew Wiggins would be on a different team in you know, like what, 30 months or whatever. Like, that's not like a crazy idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, where do you see that? How do you see the, the, the organization valuing them going forward? So I think the interesting thing is, you know, obviously very different players, but I think Kaminga's going to sort of fall into that category of, you know, Draymond at the five minutes are overpowering to other teams. But mm-hmm. if we play Draymond at the five all the time, not only is it going to wear him down physically, but they're going to be, have more time to find gaps. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, you know, like let's not play all our cards early right now. Um, but I think his long-term position is at uh, like a true four. And I think that's because you have, you know, the inklings of maybe being spacing, but he can, he can really drive. Like he can be a screen and roll guy. You know, they've had to simplify things a little more offensively because when they get some of them into their more complex sets, it's a little tough. Like he can get the timing wrong, but you've seen – You've seen the growth on that end, and I think especially since James Wiseman's stint down in Santa Cruz got to sort of slide him back to those minutes at the four, like his quality of play hit a whole different stride because he was able to play more of his natural position instead of ostensibly being the three when neither guy in the front court can shoot. You know, Jermichael Green's shot is just broken right now, and obviously James Wiseman's not spacing the floor, so... I think that made it a lot more difficult. And at least with Jermichael in theory, you know, like teams are still 
respecting him out to the perimeter. So now you have a much more open paint for Kaminga to attack. And he's got more defensive responsibility now, which I think is really encouraging. So they can all coexist. Like, I think Moses is kind of your classic, you know, bigger two, smaller three. Um, mm-hmm. He's, you know, tweener is a stupid term because it implies that he doesn't fit in either of those roles. Like, he can fit in either because he can be a little quicker than some wings, um, but he's a little stronger than some two guards. So he has. I think natural advantages that play him up at either of those positions. And especially with the way the Warriors run things, like is Steph Curry really a traditional point guard? Um, Yes, in terms of his skill set, but not (laughs) in the way that they actually use him. So Mm -hmm. can Jordan Poole effectively be the point guard, even though he's not, you know, running 40 pick and rolls a game? Like, yes, with the way the Warriors run things, he can be. Um, you would definitely need, I think, more of a scoring and handling too than Moses Moody can provide. But I think what interests me is, you know, you said, oh, well, they fit together two through four, but there are really so many different lineup combinations outside of that mm-hmm. that fit together and bring other players into the fold. So, you know, you don't want to fall Very into the trap so. of planning on having these three guys long term and having them all be good and projecting them to be good. But it does make it a little easier from a team building perspective where you're like, okay, you know, if Moses ends up being a three, that's fine. If we get the right guy at the two or we can get another three and slide him up, we can get sort of a default starting center and then slide Kaminga to sort of like a backup five while he's starting at the four. Like you can do a lot of different things with this core, which is what really excites me about them. Exactly. I think that their their skill sets are complementary and their you know their, their size and the things that they can actually do on a court is inherently versatile in, in a lot of different ways. And I think your point to uh, Moses Moody and I is kind of like between like a guard and like a traditional like wing forward. Like I think that like that is the that's the point I've been harping on in the group chat about guards, wings, forwards, and centers. It's an important delineation. Moses Moody is a wing. Like, he's a mm-hmm. small guy who plays off the ball. Like, it's fine. He's going to guard twos, maybe some threes, but, like, not going to guard LeBron. That's okay. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the, the way they fit together is really interesting. How to maximize them defensively and offensively is a really, like, fun kind of team-building question that I just found myself thinking about all week since we booked this episode, um, which is the idea of, yeah, I think that there is a world where you can play – Jordan Poole as a point guard and, you know, kind of like shift that down a little bit. And then maybe you do need some is more like a, a ball handling or playmaking too next to him to kind of have more of a burden. But part of what has empowered Golden State to play stuff the way that they have is that they've had Draymond on the court like the entire time they played with the other is that like he's an incredibly unique presence offensively. And obviously he can't shoot, but his vision and passing opens up so many more opportunities for them. They play a ton with Andrew Bogut, which I think helps a lot. I think Kavon Looney like operates well as like a, a general like, decision maker in like the high post. Like, how do you, like, I don't think Kaminga really thrives there. And I think that that style of player is generally a little bit harder to come by. Like obviously Looney was like a late first, but you know, Bogut is the first overall pick like for a reason. I mean, he traded him for Monte Ellis, but like, that doesn't mean that he was as good as Monte Ellis. He's much better than Monte Ellis. Um, well, and obviously Draymond is Draymond, but like that is like there's a reason that that archetype of player is so valuable because they're so hard to come by. And like, is that like something that you can really hope is going like, to expect to happen? Yeah, I don't think 
like I said, you know, you don't want to fall into the trap of expectations where you sort of paint this picture of what you think this player can be. And then you suddenly find yourself assuming that that's what they're going to be like things change all the no, time. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Moses Moody gets a little more creation juice or maybe he's just, you know, sort of a defense first guy and you kind of hope the offense picks up um, with Kuminga, you know, you would hope that he can show you a little more creation, but maybe he's just a really, really good off ball wing, like one who, mm-hmm really can't even shoot but if you know if you're an elite cutter offensive rebounder and you can like drive and get to the rim on mismatches you, you have value and that defense will bring you to the table so i think that's that's what interests me too is you know even with jordan Poole, they're like we're we're betting on you being like a primary level scorer but we're yeah. also not going to pigeonhole ourselves into you being that um like i think we've seen We've seen the problem, you know, obviously to a much different extent because of how talented he is, but we've seen that problem with Minnesota where they put this whole roster together thinking Anthony Edwards is going to take that step. And then he didn't, and now they're screwed. Like, it's as simple mm-hmm. as that. You know, like they expected him to be this dominant perimeter player. And it's not really a knock on him that he's not that yet. I think they just got a little ahead of themselves in assuming what he could be. And, you know, the Warriors have done that to some degree. Like, they've said, Jordan Poole, you are our second offensive star. Compared to Steph, he's definitely a more dynamic player than Clay Thompson. Like, Clay still has his moments, but he's pretty limited in what he can do, especially post-injury. So, I think that's maybe hurting them a little bit. You know, they maybe got a little too caught up in that projection. But at the same time, you know, if you take that risk and he becomes sort of this primary level guy on that next contract, then it really helps you fill a lot of other things out in place. Yeah. I think that I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jordan Poole could very well be the difference of like a Western conference finals loss and like an NBA championship. I think that his, mm-hmm. like the way he fits on this team, like, like you said, like they don't need him to be a good basketball team. They have a ton of good pieces around him and not as maybe cohesive of a unit as last year. And obviously there's a whole season to uh, to figure things out kind of like along the edges, but uh, like they're going to be good either way, but they're going to need Jordan Poole to like actually win a title because they really don't have any other creation juice on their roster besides stuff like this, this, it's really a tough situation to be in in that respect if you're like, you can't rely on them. And I think that because they have to, like they're going to continue to do so and that it's probably going to turn around and we're going to look up in May and the Warriors are awesome again and mm-hmm. everyone's going to act shocked. And it's like, oh, how did this happen? It's like, oh, they're freaking Terminator, man. You can't kill them. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I think that uh, it's a really interesting group of young guys. I do want to hit on Wiseman for a little bit here because I think that there is still a lot of validity to his, you know, prospectum, I guess. He's still young, very large human. Bigs take a little bit longer to learn the ins and outs of, like, their role offensively and defensively. And his situation in Golden State, I think, is far from ideal in terms of his skill set, how they want to play basketball, but also, like, their willingness to put him on the court consistently to get minutes. And, obviously, his injury history. Like, I think that there's a lot of factors that have played into this kind of like doomsday outcome for someone that like, was the number two overall pick. And while there were lots of reasons to be hesitant coming out of high school, like is in college was a pedigreed player and like still has a ton of like latent talent that is 
untapped to at least an extent. Um, so I guess, do you see there being a future in Golden State that has James Wiseman being like a like core rotational piece on the roster? Do you see that like where that can actually work out, or do you think that this is just like kind of slowly stepping towards a parting? And if so, where what kind of like situation would you want to see him in? So I think at this point, you know, when I wrote my obituary was harsh, but you know, (laughs) like I did want to make it clear like what I'm delineating that you, like you said, there's so many things that have worked against James Wiseman's favor that have been completely out of his control. We had the NCAA really doing him dirty. We had a bunch of injuries that kicked in. Um, You know, we had sort of this roster that wasn't prepared to bring him back in for the stretch run. You know, like he probably could have gotten playing time last year, but they're like, Hey, we're, on the cusp of something here. Like we can't risk it, mm-hmm. you know, get you some minutes. So um, I understood why they did that. Uh, I've divorced my expectations of James Wiseman from my expectations of James Wiseman as a warrior. I don't think there is a future for him on this team because it's just such violently clashing play styles. Like it's, it's something you saw on the big team for sure. Like when they would, you know, their their starting unit just hums. Like they're flying around. They're able to do so many things. Everyone can fill in so many different spots. And then you got to the bench and everything slowed down because Wiseman's in the paint and because he's trying to screen, but he's not very good at screening. So you're very limited in what you can do and you don't have ideal players around him as well. So then the whole thing sort of falls in on itself. But you know, what's really been interesting to me is seeing him with the C-dubs, like Travion Williams is their other center on the roster, more or less. So the difference the between world. the offense, yeah, like when you have Wiseman out on the floor, it's still pretty stagnant. He's still in the paint a lot of the time. And, you know, it's a different level of competition. So he's able to show off like his physical tools a little more and just win with outright athleticism and size, which is cool to see. I mean, the guy's been almost a walking double-double since he got down there, so there's definitely some value. But then when you see Travion on the floor, who's, you know, not a normal NBA center by any stretch of the imagination, but he is a warrior center because he can space out to the perimeter, not because he's a shooter, but because he makes plays, because he can legitimately take guys off the dribble. Um, is he ideal defensively? No, but it brings all the other players on the floor to a whole different level of engagement offensively because they know that that guy is continuing the flow instead of stopping it. So when you have guys like you know, Ryan Rollins, who's finding his legs as a playmaker, Patrick Baldwin Jr., Lester Quinones, like all these other guys who can kind of just are sort of more there to play a role. Like when you have a guy like Wiseman, who's really taking so many things away from them, it just sort of has this nasty trickle down effect. And um, that's, that's sort of the thing to me, you know, like I've seen, okay, he's getting healthier. He's learning some things. Like there's still some clear deficiencies here, but there's a player in there for sure. Like, how good of a player, I don't really feel like we have much data to say at this point, but 
you know, guys who have been, you know, quote unquote busts have made 10 plus year like careers in the league just off being really big, rebounding, cleaning up on the offensive glass, uh, like, you know, finishing the occasional pick and roll. So I think he has a future. I just don't see it with Golden State at this point because the clash of his play style and theirs is just really too severe on both ends of the floor. Yeah, I think that that it felt that way in the beginning, and, and it's not a surprise to say that's how it worked out. Obviously, there was some amount of optimism that that would develop, and I think when when Kamingo was drafted, there's a lot of the same questions of like, well, we just had just drafted James Wiseman, and like this is the same kind of idea of like, is he going to be able to fit in the scheme of our offense, and is he going to be able to actually like survive here, much less thrive? And like the fact that Kamingo has been able to do it, I think, is really a testament to how like much he has grown in the league already. And that, like that is to go from being an 18 year old being drafted to being put into the golden state warriors with Steph Curry and Draymond Green and like finding a way to get minutes within two years is like, is awesome. And that's, it's really hard to develop that like quick processing speed or even just like decisiveness on both ends of the court. I think that that is something that James has really struggled with. And as you can see that as you watch him, that he hasn't played a ton of basketball, but it's like, he doesn't know where he's supposed to be or that, the ways he's going to score most effectively, like how he knows he can get a bucket or like you said, like the, the nuances of setting screens, both on or off ball. Like there's like a, there's a ton of like small stuff to it that just half of it is just being confident and doing things like with intention and purpose. And I think that it, that just hasn't been the case for Wiseman. He's never had his feet underneath him. And I think that maybe there's something better there. And I think that, like you said, he should be an awesome rebounder and like, you know, drop, big man who can protect the rim. Like he should be like really good there and he should be able to thrive. And I think that some of his struggles throughout the rest of the court and like kind of understanding his role and where he's supposed to be has affected that negatively in golden state. And hopefully he gets a second shot, but I'm not really sure. I mean, he would be fun in Dallas. Like I would think I don't see why okay. the Mavs wouldn't be able to use him. I think he'd be really cool. And I don't think that they really asked their bigs to do a lot. And there's a reason that you know, obviously Porzingis has been really good this year. And I think that he is moving a ton better. And like he just looks like a more confident player out there. But there's a reason they were able to make it work with Chris Ops even after his injury when he came back and was like moving like a log. Like <laughs> they at least weren't terrible. And it's because they don't ask their bigs to do that much in space. And I think that James could could thrive there. Like yeah, tell me that that's a really interesting spot, actually. I think too often when I try to project, like, where could he go? It's always a bad team. But you wonder, yeah. like, what good teams could actually make use out of him right now just off having a different scheme and a different set of responsibilities they outline for their guys. Exactly. And having something that you can at least, like, sell yourself on, like, working out, like, to a larger degree, I guess. Otherwise, when there is something like, oh, he – like, there is – Again, like he is somebody that wasn't like just like a, a normal good high school recruit. He was like the, the cream of the crop for a reason because he's an outlier human being. Like there is like something exciting there, and I think Dallas would be a fun one just because, um, like Atlanta already has too many role threats that like I, I wouldn't want to put him there. But like put him somewhere that they want to run like seventy pick and rolls a game and let him just do it and like have him figure it out over the course of two seasons. And you know, like I I don't know, we'll see. Um, be fun in Houston too, but. I will not let that get in the way of my Alperin Shangun agenda. I would, so, I would not wish that on James. No, <laughs> See, just on a personal it, level. At least there's still some love there, you know. Like you know, there, there's never any hatred for you know. Maybe he's done done in Golden State, but we, we still love James Weissman. 
Yeah. Um, then I think that, uh, you know, you said Trevon Williams, and for a moment there, I was like, oh, dude, well, we were just talking about guys who are large who can also make plays. Um, yeah, it kind of fits the bill. Uh, I would like to see some minutes there. Uh, he's a really interesting idea, and obviously having the insulation of Draymond is nice. I don't think that Kaminga is any kind of – even the most optimistic projections of Kaminga don't sniff like a Draymond level of outcome defensively. But, you know, that that, that's, that, would, that would excite me. I would like to see – Jonathan Kaminga running out cuts and Trayvon Williams like finding him like behind the back and like not looking. It's that'd be cool. I would like there that. is some. I don't know how like to what degree I can confirm it. So probably by speaking into an existence, I will be wrong. Yes. But there is some inkling of like they kept their fifteenth roster spot open. Um, pr- they've definitely in the past been the like, hey, we really like our two way guys one of them will play himself into a standard contract. So, you know, if an Anthony Lamb or a Ty Jerome gets the call up or even just gets, you know, outright cut, because Jerome's okay, but I don't think he's really shown that he's, you know, like if the Warriors were like, hey, we released him tomorrow and signed Travion Williams to a two to the two-way spot, no one would be that flustered by it or surprised. Yeah. So... You know, there there's definitely like some momentum towards he might get a look towards the end of the year to kind of see, hey, like what do we have right now? Like is this a is this an element we can carry with us to the playoffs to maybe just like take teams off their game for two or three minute stretches at the end of a quarter um and have a a true five out lineup where, you know, as much as I love Draymond and the things he can do on the ball, like Travion can legitimately just take a mismatch off the dribble and get to the rim, which is wild for a center. (laughs) And he he gets away with that because he's a smaller center and it comes with defensive struggles. But, you know, we we might be seeing a little Travion in Golden State this year. That would be really exciting. I think he'd be an awesome fit there. It's somebody to kind of like, you know, soak up some of the – the, the staff minutes based on the bench because like it is kind of hard to make like offensively oriented decisions with your roster when like just playing Steph Curry means you have a 132 offensive rating like it's like okay well like that's not yeah. bad like we can do that for like 42 minutes um, but yeah I think as like a small bit player he'd be fun I'd be really exciting and uh, I think that he would at least complement some of the young guys they're trying to develop well in terms of like creating some better opportunities uh, in bench units uh, I don't know. it'd be cool I would like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that he's been a cool gosh. fit actually. Like now that Patrick Baldwin Jr. is getting some run with the C Dubs, like he's been a surprisingly impact rebounder down there. Um, I mean, the guy's got you know a lot of frame, and I think I sort of expected him to be a little behind in the strength slash coordination department. You know, coming off like a more or less a lost season due to injury, but he formed some really good synergy with Travion because he's you know, a keep-the-ball-moving guy. He's he's very much like if Moses Moody were 100% a power forward. Like, he's – it's all coming down from the shot, but he can still attack closeouts. He can still make some plays. Like, are you going to – are you going to run him in a pick-and-roll? No, but, like, can he, you know, come off, like, a curl screen and maybe hit the roller because he was able to slip right? Like, yeah, he can do those things, and he can also – maybe be like a high 30s, low 40s, three-point shooter on crazy volume with a 
damn near unblockable release. So there's a lot of potential there, and he's definitely in an environment that can really help him right now. Yeah, Baldwin is a really interesting fit. I mean, he's essentially the same exact size as Kavon Looney, but is like, you know, one of the best like high school shooters of all time. I mean, like, maybe not of all time. That's probably dramatic, but he's an incredibly pedigree yeah. high school shooter. And like one of the, uh, like, as far as big shooters go, there's not, you're not going to find a whole lot better prospects coming out of college or coming out of high school into college. Um, he's a really interesting one. And uh, him being able to just be, have any kind of positive value defensively be it just like finishing possessions and getting rebounds is like a huge plus just like at least fin- at least end it for us and like let's like go the other direction now you don't have to get the stop you don't have to like block somebody's shot just like be there get the rebound I and mean, that probably has more value than people uh want to think this is kind of boring but i i appreciate it um yeah no i think he's really interesting i think that like as in a point you said like he's kind of played similarly to moses moody offensively of like he's gonna shoot it but he you know, can attack a closeout do something i think they both make plays offensively and passes in particular where you're like oh hey man like that was that was cool like that was pretty nice but not something where you're like we need to do this more like how do we do that again like it's just like oh like that was they they did the cool thing in their role and that was that was, that was sweet but um yeah yeah they, like they, that's me like when i see you know, Baldwin can do stuff. Like, there's one play that stood out to me where Wiseman sets a, you know, Wiseman-esque screen for him, like, coming off a curl going to his left. And, you know, two guys go to Baldwin. Like, one guy's trying to stay in front of them, and one guy's locked in a trail roll. So Wiseman slips, and he's able to go from, like, the lefty dribble all the way into the pocket pass with his right hand. And I'm, you know, sitting there, and I'm feeling like the Shaq meme, like, I was not familiar with your game. Like I did not, <laughs> I did not know you could do that. So yeah. let's go. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes young guys just like, there'll be plays that happen where it's like, Oh dude, like this guy's good. Like, Oh, he's, he's, he gets it. He's, he's actually really good. Like it's going to be fine. And I think that like PBJ has that level of talent. It's about surviving defensively, but like whatever offensive role you're going to put him in, I think he's going to figure it out. And obviously his circumstance in college was far from ideal. And, um, and it turns out if like, your teammates don't want you to be on their team, like it's probably hard to play basketball. And um, yeah, that's not he's, great. He's interesting too, because he sort of points to like a general pattern that they've established now where that's three straight drafts where their number one pick has been a guy who had an insane high school pedigree and then had a disappointing one and done season. Like, obviously, that's painting with incredibly broad strokes, and they've all done for different reasons. But, you know, Wiseman, Kuminga, Patrick Baldwin, like, they have a type. They want to bet on talent more than the recent production they've saw they've seen, and they want to trust their system into playing guys into their potential as opposed yeah, to taking guys who have, you know, sort of already realized that potential. Yes, I think that the nature of being a contender, especially one in a uh, glamour market like San Francisco, is that, you know, like hitting on a second round draft pick that, you know, can like play the ninth, tenth man, ninth, tenth man for you, like isn't going to kill you on the floor and can like, you know, play both ways a little bit. Like that's not going to drastically impact your chances of winning a title this year. You can find that exact same player for a veteran minimum every year because they want to come play and compete for a title in Golden State. Like, mm-hmm using those assets to take the swings that can actually provide like 
real impact even past this like current regime of Warriors players. Like that should be the entire goal of what you're trying to do because nobody you're going to draft is going to drastically change the impact of like, like your chances of winning a title in the next two years. But you know, yeah, maybe like they, they give you a chance to make the playoffs in seven, and that would be cool. They can, you know, they can afford to take a Patrick Baldwin because they can also sign a Jamichael Green. Like Jamichael exactly. has not been ideal, but you have a warm body to fill that, and you're not overly reliant on PBJ stepping into a role right off the bat. Whereas, you know, other teams that don't have that sort of, like you said, glamour market advantage, they don't get to take those kind of risks. So, you know, I yeah. I respect the process that they've gone with. Like, I think it'd be a little nice to be like, all right, you know what? Let's let's can we please just like draft a twenty-three year old, like some six-year senior or something crazy? Like, we really need a cheap, productive spot. But you know, even if in the aggregate it's been a little weird, I'm like, I can't argue with any one of these picks except for mm-hmm. you know he who should not be named. But uh. The process is really sound throughout where it's like, let's take these guys who have either showed a lot as sort of like a secondary or third guy in Moses Moody, um, Ryan Rollins to a lesser extent. He was sort of, you know, an NBA number two masquerading as a number one in college. Uh, And then we have our, you know, big upside swings in PBJ and Kaminga and Wiseman and on guys who have sort of been down on their stock recently. No, absolutely. I think that the uh, the existing talent and like of the young core on the Warriors is incredibly interesting. It's something I've been thinking about more, especially as the the Spurs enter their rebuild in terms of like how to kind of restart something as quickly as possible. And like obviously, there's going to be a point where the you know, the hull of the ship hits the bottom of the of the sea here with the Warriors. Where it's like, okay, like you know, like Steph is not the guy anymore. Maybe that's in six years. I don't know, but maybe it's sooner. Who knows? Um, you know, maybe. Point. You know, maybe Michael Jordan comes at the bag and, you know, he, he finishes his career in Charlotte and he walks oh. off into the sunset or whatever. I, mean, I do not get that reaction. But whatever, oh, it's coming to an end at some point. And, uh, like, how do you prepare for that? And how do you think? Before? Obviously, the best way to do it is, like, have Kawhi Leonard in your back pocket and be like, oh, well, we have a superstar. Surprise, another MVP. Um, but I think that an alternative way of looking at it is, to, like, how to best prepare your roster for – for that player too, like that is going to arrive one day, they would push you over the edge in terms of like being a title contender. And I think in, in Golden State, that isn't just hitting on a draft pick. It is, you know, you're in San Francisco. It's not crazy to believe that, you know, somebody would want to come play in Golden State. Like it happened five years ago. I mean, so that is an inherent advantage. And I think the guys they've taken while having like this latent like undervalued like nature of their draft selections because they've had like a tough year going in and there is some kind of upside that could be attained like with pbj and with moody and with kaminga and in pool as well like all of them profile as even if they don't hit their like one of their like really high-end outcomes is like positive complimentary players they like can provide like winning basketball they can be on the court for good offense and good defense and they can be there in high leverage situations and maybe PBJ that's probably pushing it a little bit because we don't know if he can defend anybody, but like that profile is incredibly interesting. Like you're going to be at least relatively helpful to us regardless of your circumstance, but like there is also the chance that you're really freaking good and mm-hmm. it's just, you had a bad year. And I think that is like incredibly valuable in a rebuild and is exactly what I would want to do because like 
I fully believe Golden State's going to find that guy one day, be it in the draft or through free agency or whatever. Like having the infrastructure to succeed with that player once you get them like already in place is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It is. I think you know a lot of people want to knock their process, but you know it's rare that you get to see a team coming off a championship with like four rookie contracts on the books and saying, you know what, let's get two more. Like let's, let's keep going. Like they still have really all of their draft assets. They're going to owe, you know, one pick to Memphis in the future, but that's it. Like they, they've done such an unbelievable job at like not taking the huge swings and still finding a lot of value um, throughout the draft. So, and you know, building for that next phase like you talked about when the when the ship finally hits the ocean floor (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean like when when you're in you're in contention you're trying to win and being able to do that and not entirely depleting your entire like first round pick cachet is like like incredible like to to not have to like have like what like like seven years of outstanding pick obligations when that does happen to be able to pivot. And then when you do trade pieces that are valuable to other teams and you get picks back, you're not like just getting back to zero. Like you're like building on something and you have this like asset base. Now you can move forward and do stuff. Like, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. that this is by all accounts been good business. And, you know, I think that we'll get to May and the Warriors are going to be great again. And that's just how it's going to be because uh, they are the death machine and uh, they are unstoppable. But, uh, I think that is probably good here. I could I could talk Warriors more. Uh, I could talk Ryan Rollins, but I, I don't <laughs> want to get into Ryan Rollins. If we're at an hour and a half in, I'm not sure that's really worth it from a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, so, uh, Charlie, thank you for coming on. Plug your stuff. Uh, thank you for writing great things at the Switch Theory because you make us look great, and uh, keep doing it. Yeah, well, uh, as you already said, you can check out most of my stuff on the Switch Theory. I also do some writing for... Uh, site I started with some buddies, uh, outlookpass.net. Um, I like like checking in there. It's fun to have a little little creative control there. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you can check me out on Twitter at Calatheist11. That's where I post damn near everything I work on. Um, and you know, as long as that bird site keeps running, I'll be there. Yes, thank you, Charlie, for coming on. It has been a great conversation. Seriously, uh, Charlie is not going to be long for this line of work here. Someone's going to pay him money, and he's going to stop putting things on the internet, and uh, you're going to have to pay for it. It's going to be terrible, so read it while you can. It's great stuff. Thank you for listening. I guess, as David says, this is uh, the Finishing Touch podcast signing off. (laughs) Peace.